We're going to be reading Genesis 3, 7 to 24. Um, I just want to say before this, because we haven't honoured you yet, and I really like to honour you as a church. If you serve on Open Door, are employed or volunteering for Open Door, we don't want to embarrass you, because we know you do these things very humbly. But this morning, we want to celebrate and thank you for everything that you do in Open Door. So if that's you, will you stand up? If you volunteer or if you are employed or or, uh, serve in any way in Open Door, can you all stand up? Anybody who does that, thank you so, so much. Thank you so, so much. You can take your seats. This little vision started over a decade ago by a little flame Um, a little act of compassion, a little flame in a couple's heart um, who now have moved over to Turkey and actually are trying to replicate uh, what what you guys are doing here over there. And so, you know, I just want to thank you for carrying out the vision that God has put in our hearts as a church to really support and and really serve Teesside and beyond. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to give this a go. Kamye Hadir Kum. Umkwa bidahan mesakum and goite ye barakum. And what is it? I can't, I can't remember what good morning is. Sobe beher. Whoa! And good morning to the rest of you. Welcome to the start of our Christmas uh, Christmas time services. Are you excited yet? I am. I've heard the first carol this morning. Well done, Andy. Uh, If you're a visitor here this morning, thank you uh, so much for joining us. It's great to have so many people from different nations with us today. One of the things that I've loved watching over the years at Jubilee is how we have become more mixed and international. Lots of people from different backgrounds, as we saw praying at the start, uh, different languages, countries, ages. Um, When I first joined this church, um, uh, before I became a Christian actually, joined this church way back in 2000, I was the only dark-skinned person here. And now, isn't it amazing what God is doing across this church? Every Sunday as I look across this room, I thank Jesus for the beauty and the diversity and the colour and the life amongst us. Uh, This really is a unique church. Uh, Don't ever let that pass you by. To all, you, to all of you from different nations, thank you so much for bringing and sharing all you are and all you do um, so that we, the whole church, can get a bigger glimpse, a bigger picture of the glorious God we worship because that's what we're about. So thank you very much. Uh, we're going uh, to be doing something slightly different this morning. The passage that I felt God draw me to today isn't the usual Christmas thing, really. Um, it's not going to be uh, stars and shepherds and three wise men over the next 20 minutes or so. Instead, I felt rather than bringing the story of Christmas again, no doubt that's going to happen over our next few services, um, instead I wanted, to, I wanted really to bring you all the message of Christmas. Why is Christmas so important to the world? Why is it celebrated by over 3 billion people around the world as one of the most life-changing, history-changing, world-shaping events that has transformed humanity ever? That is an uncontroversial statement. 
How, how this, how, if you like, this little baby who rocked into our world over 2,000 years ago has changed it, brought meaning to it, transformed it more than any of us really could possibly imagine. That's the message of Christmas. How come? And so this morning, what I want to do is take us, take us all really to the way, to way back to the beginning of all beginnings um, um, and really put the Christmas story as we hear every year, this Christmas baby into the context of the whole story of the Bible, the whole panoramic picture of the story of God, if you like. So, if you, so before we get into Genesis 7, 24, these will be familiar passages for a lot of you. We're just going to need a little bit of background just to put it into context. So the book of Genesis, which means origins, is a powerful declaration, hear this, is a powerful declaration that God created the world that he is in control, that all life and every goings-on in the whole of the universe is not just an accident, as some people would tell us, but by, but, but by a, a God who is creating and sustaining and very involved. Um, uh, the start of Genesis actually starts in the beginning, God. That's the thundering start of this amazing book. No long drawn out explanations or arguments about who made God, about who was there before him. It's not a detailed science book of how things came to be. There's no philosophical debate. There's no uncertainty, no confusion, no ambiguity. Just in the beginning, God. I always find that fascinating every time I open the Bible. In a book that spans over 2,000 years, if you 2,000 years of history, if you think about it, and with stories about all sorts of people who don't believe in the biblical God at all, the Bible never, ever presents an argument for his existence. Never. And so right at the start of the Bible, we have this full account of God beautifully, wonderfully, miraculously creating the universe, the world, and everything. And at the climax of, create, of all creation, the top of the mountain, the pinnacle, his greatest feat is making man and woman in his very own image. That's how the Bible describes it. Nothing else created, nothing else in all of creation is created in this special image of God. Humanity is unique and precious and personal to this living God. And so he puts them, Adam and Eve, in his, in this, in his God's perfect place, paradise, the Garden of Eden, a garden brimming with life and provision and purpose. God and humanity living together in perfect harmony and peace, what the Bible calls shalom, you might have heard that word, a full flourishing interdependence in every dimension, a beautiful uh, reliance on God, physical, emotion, emotional, social, spiritual, perfect, filled with joy. That's how the Bible kicks off. And the one thing that God says to Adam and Eve, the, the only condition really, is never, Adam and Eve, never, ever eat from the tree of life, the tree of knowledge and good. He never, he never tells them why, never gives them a reason. He just says, look, will you trust me with this? That's what God says. Will you love me and obey me purely because you love me and trust me? Not because you're going to get anything out of it, not for your own self-centered or selfish 
uh, reasons, not because you're going to benefit in any way. No. I want your motivation to be a heart of trust and honour and love for me, the living God. That's the foundation that I want your relationship to to be built on, says God. Will you do that? He cries out to Adam and Eve. And then, for those of you who know the story, most of you will know the story. We know the story. The serpent, the snake, the devil deceives them, Adam and Eve, gets them to question God, gets them to want to be like God, gets them to doubt um, God and the, beautiful, and, the, and the beautiful shalom of paradise, um, gets them to question God and gets them to doubt God. And then this beautiful shalom of paradise starts to unravel and unwind. Eve eats the fruit of the tree. Adam eats the fruit of the tree. That intimate, life-giving trust is broken between God and man, humanity and the divine. And everything, everything from then on changes. And then we get to what we're about to read now. Genesis 3, 7 to 24. Listen to what happens. I'll read it uh, from the uh, NIV translation. Then... Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Shame makes its entrance for the first time. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves to hide their shame. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden for the very first time. But the Lord God didn't ignore them. He called to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, and God said, and who told you that you are naked? What's changed, Adam? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man said, The woman who you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It was her fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. It was his fault. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild, and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, friction, conflict, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers for generations to come. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and dust to dust you will return. These are the consequences of sin, shame and death entering the world. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then he banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. 
After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, big angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this amazing account of the start of all things. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that this isn't just a kid's book, but actually this is a great philosophical, a great deep spiritual description of our world today. I I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we unpack this this morning, as we celebrate Christmas, as we come into this uh, time of, of all the Christmas celebrations and the joy, I pray, Lord God, that we spend moments thinking about you. Spend moments about what Christmas is all about. I pray, Lord God, that Christmas will transform our lives again as it does every year through the birth of Jesus Christ into the world. Thank you, Lord. You know what? This is a very sophisticated and deeply meaningful story. Um, Sometimes we can pass it off as just a kid's story, not really relevant to us, fiction. But the book of Genesis isn't primarily a kid's book. But actually, it's a, it's a book for grown-ups, a book for humanity, as we just prayed out there, to see the reality of the world we live in, to make sense of it, help us navigate, navigate it, to give us hope in a desperately hopeless world. You see, what Christmas, you see, that's what Christmas does to us every year, doesn't it? If you think about it, I love Christmas. The kids get all excited. We start reading uh, some, of, some of the brilliant Christmas books and stories. Trevor the turkey is out and he, one day he'll meet his doom. Brussels sprouts, bread, uh, bread sauce, who invented them and why? Her Royal Highness Lizzie on the telly, the Christmas decorations, pudding, carols, presents, family and friends, the snowman, the Wizard of Oz. Woohoo! In case um, you haven't noticed, I'm a little bit excited about Christmas. Um, I love everything about it. I love the joys and celebrations. If you're from another nation and celebrate Christmas, you might be thinking, what on earth am I talking about? He's nuts. No, I'm not. You'll do it differently. You'll do it differently, but you'll still enjoy it. And so on the one hand, Christmas time is a time of joy and celebration, but it's also, but also in amongst all the celebration and excitement of Christmas, Christmas seems to reveal another side of the world we live in. A world of 9-11 and parachutings, of poverty and war, of child abuse, of painful broken marriages, of depression, separation, financial uh, pressure, corruption. In the midst of all this celebration that goes on, Uh, At Christmas, there's a sharp car crash contrast that always hits us, or I find always hits me, at this time of the year as we watch the TV, whether we're remembering the past and thinking of loved ones or times before, whether we're responding to a charity appeal even. The word is really, the world is really not as it should be. We know that deep at the bottom of our hearts. I'm a GP And that is the story, the 10-minute story of every single appointment, if you dig deep enough. A story of shame and often disappointment. And really, that's uh, that's the big idea, the big question of this passage, isn't it? In the midst of God's beautiful provision and abundance and joy and glory, sin and shame come crashing in, all because man and woman chose to go it alone. Without God, leave me alone, God. I can do this better without you. 
And the question that God asks very poignantly, very meaningly, the question that God asks humanity, actually, at the fall is this. Who told you you were naked? That's a very, very deep question. Who told you 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 were naked? If you think about it, Adam and Eve were made naked. They they never owned clothes. They danced naked, they ate naked, they walked naked. I can imagine that's making you all feel very cringy at the moment. But nakedness wasn't a problem to them. In fact, in Genesis 2.25, a bit before, tells us that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So what was this question all about? Who told you you were naked? Why has that suddenly become a big deal? Well, nakedness in the Bible represents something far greater than just not having your clothes on. Nakedness means to be known, to be vulnerable. Nakedness is someone seeing into your very being. Who are you? And uh, into your very being, who you are. And before Adam and Eve had sinned, went against God, being fully seen wasn't a problem. There wasn't sin, there wasn't anything wrong. So to reveal their heart wasn't a problem. In fact, this paradise they lived in was a daily affair of God and man walking together in closeness, perfection, beauty, intimacy, open, naked, beautiful. No shame, no condemnation, no guilt, no striving, no stress, no depression, no remorse. Imagine what that would be like. Yet suddenly, as Adam chose to defy God, to crack apart this, that beautiful, life-giving relationship of trust and closeness, their nakedness suddenly becomes a problem. Now it becomes painful. Now it becomes shameful and unacceptable for God to see their heart, to see them uncovered, to see the real them. Is that you? Probably if you're honest. Suddenly what was transparent before God and open, what was all out, suddenly becomes closed, shut. They have to hide it. They have to control what information about themselves others find out about them. And so this is the great dilemma of the human soul. This is the big idea of Genesis, um, uh, the early passages in Genesis. Deep, deep down, our heart tells us that we were created to be fully known and loved, but the reality is that when we look uh, into this very same heart, the only way we can be fully loved is to hide, is to hide everything in it with fig leaves, tall trees, and excuses. It was his fault. It was their fault, just like Adam and Eve. Do you relate to that? Jesus said, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes him or her. Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. I think that pretty much includes all of us here. All these, Jesus said, are vomit from the heart. A guy called Francis Schaeffer, he was a Christian philosopher and a Bible teacher, once did a little thought experiment. Have a think through this with me. Um, 
trying, to get in, trying to get us to think about um, what Jesus said about our hearts. And he says something like this. Imagine God puts a little invisible tape recorder or what would it be called now, Matthew? Um, a CD recorder or whatever, you know, kind of coming up with the times. But imagine Apple or something. Um, imagine God puts a little... I'm going to stick with tape recorder. Um, puts put a little tape recorder around your neck and the only thing that this tape recorder ever picks up is when you tell, uh, is when you tell somebody how they ought to be or should be living. Sounds familiar? Um, so only when you start saying things like, you ought to do it this way, or you should never do that, or I can't believe that's what you said or thought, suddenly, click, the tape recorder starts recording. In other words, it only records your standards of behavior, your standards for people's lives. And then you roll on through life um, with this tape recorder around your neck, clicking away, and eventually, you come to that great moment in life that we will all come to, Judgment Day, when we're all standing before the throne of Jesus. This is a thought experiment, by the way. And Jesus says on this great day, do you know what? I'm really going to be fair to you. I really am. You, don't, you have no idea how fair I'm going to be. This is the deal. I'm, I'm not going to judge you by my perfect standards. I'm not going to judge you by the golden rules or the Ten Commandments or the law of God. This is just a thought experiment, by the way. Or the Bible or the example of my life, Jesus. No, no, I'm going to be much more fair than that. I'm just going to judge you by your very own standards. And so on that final day, we stood there and, you know, this Jesus comes up to us and he, he takes that little tape recorder off our head and you say, gosh, I didn't know it's that there. And Jesus says, of course you didn't. It was invisible. Thought experiment. Then he says, why don't we just play it back and see if you've lived up to all your standards? And so he plays it back real by real. And we listen. And listen. And we continue to listen. How do you think you would feel? Be honest. The reality would be this, wouldn't it? Even if that's how God did his final judgment, based only on our own standards, your own standards, there is not a person on the face of the earth who would stand and pass even that judgment of God. You know that. Genesis, you see, is a sophisticated account of how sin and shame entered this world and controls us. And sometimes we can be oblivious to it. Sometimes we need little thought experiments like that. And so we go through life. What do we do with all this? And so we go through life trying to cover our nakedness and shame, don't we? We go through life patching together fig leaf after fig leaf, covering, hiding, masking, we live out our marriages and work and relationships and work lives and family life and church life hiding behind trees, covering our deep sense of unacceptability, the flaws you don't want anybody else to see. After a while, actually, we become immune to it. We don't even realize it's happening. But, it's all, but it always is, always, always is. All the makeup, all the diets, all the emails, all the Facebook entries, all the labels, all the lies, all the cleaning, 
all the parties, all the striving, all our defensiveness, all our hostility, all our appraisals, all the charity, all our religious behavior, all our awards and badges and degrees, all our important titles and GCSEs, all the interviews, all the anger and blaming others. These are just fig leaf after fig leaf after fig leaf. Tall trees. We cannot show God or others the real me. We cannot perfectly cover our shame and guilt. But we keep, keep trying. But the trees and the fig leaves are just not big enough. That's a very sophisticated account of humanity. The philosophers are now are all agreeing with this, or a lot of them are agreeing with it. So what does Christmas What does Christmas tell us about all this? How does Christmas set us free? How is Christmas the answer? How can we be fully known and fully loved at the same time? Or is that just the way it is? Sometimes in the middle of the night, um, Jesh might walk into our room while we're fast asleep and in his bleary-eyed sleepiness say, Daddy, my covers have all fallen off. In our new house, it's pitch black. So we all kind of jump out of bed when that happens. Daddy, my covers have all fallen off. And being the great man of God I am, I try to pretend to Charlotte, my wife, uh, I haven't heard him. And so so hopefully that she'll get up and sort him out. You obviously relate to me on that one too. And when that doesn't work, although usually it does, uh, I... (laughs) I say to Jesh, why don't you put your covers on? You don't need me to do that. You're a big boy now. And by the way, it's half two in the morning. And then the very same words come out as in his half-asleep voice. You do it, Daddy. Daddy, will you do it? Please, Daddy, can you do it? I love that. Even at half two in the morning. Although things have gone terribly wrong in the midst of all the doom and gloom of this penetrating account of humanity that we've just read about, of history, hidden uh, hidden in it, hidden in this story, is a little glimmer of hope, a little voice of hope. See verse 21. It's so easy to miss at times. It says this, The Lord God made garments uh, of skin for Adam and, and, and his wife and clothed them. That's a warm tunic going right down to the floor. That would be their understanding of that. In the desperation of man's sin, in the naked shamefulness of his distrust and rebellion towards his Father God, the very same Father God says, I'll clothe you. I'll do it. Andrew Wilson, a Bible teacher, writes this, Nakedness and transparency, intended as blessings, had now become a disgrace through the corrupting power of sin. But there is one thing, one thing in the world that can overcome disgrace, and that is grace. God's amazing grace. I'll do it. I'll cover your nakedness. I'll be your righteousness. You can't, but I can. That's the realization 
that we all must come to because it's a fact of life. That's the big theme of the Bible, you know, that God will clothe us. Ezekiel 16 is a great example of God's amazing clothing grace. It says this, One day you were born, on the day you were born, you were not washed with water to make you clean. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion. You were despised. Then God says, I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. As you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And then hear this, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I clothed you with an embroidered dress. I covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful, beautiful crown on your head. That's what the God of the Bible um, that's, what, that's what the God of the Bible of Christmas is all about. That's the God we've been worshipping here this morning. A God who says, your shame can be removed. These are the decorations and the tinsel and the baubles that will change your life forever. At Christmas time, God himself came into our destruction and nakedness and condemnation and the shame of our lives as a baby. Naked, vulnerable, open, fully seen himself. The King of Kings, think about this, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was right there in the beginning of the beginning, entered our world of sin and death and shame, and condemnation, and cover-ups, and fig leaves. Wow! And this, this, this very same naked baby, as he, as he grew into manhood, demonstrated uh, the compassionate, life-giving heart of God. Time and time again, he went to the unloved, the guilt-ridden, the shamed and dishonored, and lifted their heads, just like you guys do, at open door. Prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, outcasts, foreigners, criminals. He saw into the very depths of their hearts, our heart, and took all the hidden, deep down, covered shame into his very soul. On the cross, stripped naked once again, this Jesus said, look, I'll do it for you. I'll do it. I will. Everything that separated us from God, all the shame that stopped us being known and loved at the same time by our, by our Creator God was finished by Jesus' loving sacrifice on another tr- kind of tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this perfectly. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness, no shame, no condemnation of God. That's the beauty of Christmas, isn't it? As those who trust in Jesus, we are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. When God the Father looks on us, uh, he sees the perfect the perfect beauty of Jesus' covering, of Jesus covering all of our scars and guilt and history and shame. Now we really can be loved by this gracious, loving God of the beginning. 
Now we really don't need to be striving and stressing and covering up here, there, and everywhere. It doesn't need to happen. That's the joy news of Jesus. That's the real gift of Christmas. That's the celebration that I get particularly excited about. That's the great party of life. Listen, deep down, isn't this what you really want above all things? Isn't that the great want, desire, above all desires? Daddy, will you do it? Daddy, Father in heaven, will you do it? Will you? For God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his one and only son to take our shame and sin upon himself, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but definitely will have eternal life. Yes, I will, God says. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I already have. That's Christmas, folks. And over the next few weeks, we're going to get even more excited about this God who doesn't just patch us up, but deals with the great problem of humanity. Your problem, my problem and sets us free from this life of condemnation and shame and stressing and striving. That's the great God of the Bible that we're going to be worshipping. You're going to be seeing on TV, on lots of different settings, in the papers, in magazines over the Christmas season. We're going to sing a song now, and we're going to worship. We're going to worship this great God. And uh, So if you stand, that would be great. Um, There's going to be no band. We're going to be putting it up on the screen. We're also going to take our collection. If you're a a visitor here, we, we don't want any of your money or anything like that. We're so grateful that you've come. We're going to worship now. This is a Christmas song that really kind of spoke to me a lot about of the things that I've been saying this morning. And as we sing this song, can I encourage you? We would love to pray for you. If you want us to pray for anything, there's a whole load of stuff that goes on in our lives, unseen. We hide it. We don't ask for prayer. We just keep it buried, buried, buried. It might be asylum cases. It might be difficult situations in life. It might be, as Sarush said, a need for healing. What is it, what is it that's troubling you? Physical healing, physical pain. Depression, anxiety, stress. These are all very common things with an audience this big. And I just want to encourage you this morning, come out to the sides, come out to the front, and we would love to pray for you. We would love to usher in the life-saving, setting-free God who removes all shame and all condemnation as you trust in him. So just feel free. We're not going to get all weird on you. We would just love to pray for you. Okay. Let's worship this God and let's sing this Christmas song together.